Our Lord and God, we come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have lived and died for our justification. We thank you, Lord. And as we come this morning, we pray that you would give us listening ears, believing hearts, understanding minds, and eyes to see you, Lord. Help us, Father, to not only hear, but to apply, to live And also to take up our cross and die. Let the words that are spoken today from your word be great encouragement to us. As to how we are to live our lives for your glory in this world. Lord, I decrease so that you may increase. I become less so that you and you alone can become more. Be glorified this morning. Let your people see and hear you. We pray all of this for the glory of God and for the sake of Christ. Amen. Esther chapter 8. Thank you for joining us as we continue our studies through the book of Esther. Esther chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And he took off his signet ring which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Upon reading the first verse of the eighth chapter, one may tend to think that the story of Esther has now ended and that all is well in the Persian Empire for Esther, for Mordecai, and for all the Jews. After all, Wicked Haman has been hung on the gallows, gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. So then it would appear that the threat against Israel is no more. Not only has life been spared for Esther and for Mordecai, but Mordecai has now been elevated to second in command in Persia. He is given the king's signet ring. After Esther reveals to the king who Mordecai is to her, Mordecai is elevated in the way that Joseph before him was elevated in Egypt or the way that Daniel before him was elevated in Babylon, even in the midst of the greatest empires on this earth. God has been furthering his purposes for his glory. It would appear then that the threat of the people of God, the threat to the people of God is is all but disappeared. And, and you might even conclude, and they lived happily ever after, right? Because isn't that the way the story kind of feels at times? But not so. There was still a great threat to the people of God. What is that great threat? Well, first of all, the great threat is the promise of God. To bring a deliverer through the the people of God, the Jews, is still being threatened. How is it still being threatened? Haman is gone. Haman is gone. But the, the decree or the edict that Haman has decreed in the name of the king, that decree is still very much alive. That decree did not perish with Haman. The people of Israel, the Jewish nation, they are still Destined to die. So what are the people to do? Esther, once again, stands before the king. Only this time she does not stand. She comes weeping at the king's feet. 
begging for his mercy. Verse 3 of chapter 8. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. The king once again holds out the merciful scepter of grace once again. And Esther arises and she says in verse 5, If it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The king says to Esther, as gently as he can, the edict, the decree that has been sent out with the king's signet ring, it cannot be revoked. That which has gone out cannot be changed. There's no change in the decree once it has been decreed. But there was a counter. There was a way to counter that decree. How so? Let another decree be issued. Let another edict be issued that would counter the previous one. The king gave Esther permission to write another decree, another edict. And he would give to that decree his royal seal. Verse 9 tells us that it was Mordecai who actually wrote the new decree. And he sent it out among the 127 provinces in the name and with the seal of King Ahasuerus. Now, what was the previous decree? It was that all of the Jews in all of the provinces, 127 provinces, that they be killed and annihilated and that their goods be plundered. So what then is this new edict? What is this new decree that was devised by Mordecai? Verse 11. The king allowed the Jews who were in the, who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, the decree issued. It stated before that the previous decree was you are to be ready to die. This new decree is you are to be ready to defend yourself. Or and the Bible actually says, I think, in verse 13, somewhere around there, that you are to be ready to take vengeance. Do you see that there? Take vengeance. Take vengeance on anyone who would attack you. Mordecai was elevated. And this decree so pleased the people that rather there rather than there being confusion as there was among the first edict, there is now joy and celebration and a feast and a holiday in light of this new decree. As a matter of fact, verse 17 says, and many from the people or many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. They had been so moved by what they saw in the people of Israel that they declared themselves also people of Israel or converted to Judaism. Now we come to the ninth chapter. And in the ninth chapter, in the very beginning of that chapter, that 13th day of the 12th month, that, that dreaded day that they were all not looking forward to, that day has come. The day which... 
The decree of Haman said that they are to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. That day is here. Verse 1. On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. You see that there? The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. There were those who, although the king had issued a new edict, and although they had received this new edict, this new decree, they decided nevertheless to go forth and attack the Jews. And as a result of those who attempted to attack the Jews, 75,000 were killed. 75,000 people attempted to attack and kill the Jews. And 75,000 of them died. The ten sons of Haman were also killed and thus fulfilled and thus God fulfilled his promise to to Moses in Exodus chapter 17, where he promised Moses that the memory of Amalek would be wiped off of the face of the earth because the Jews attacked or because the Amalekites attacked the Jews after their exodus. And thus God fulfills his promise to Moses. After all these things, verse 19 of chapter 9. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So within these two chapters, what are we to learn? What are we to gather from these two chapters of the book of Esther? I think that we learn three things. Number one, we learn that there is good use of authority. Good use of authority. Number one, the Bible explicitly teaches that God has ordered and ordained the state and governing authorities. Listen closely. To be his servants and to maintain order and uphold justice In this fallen world. That may be hard for some people to hear. That God has has ordained and ordered that the state and governing authorities are his servants. They're his servants that do what? They maintain order. And they are to uphold justice in this fallen world. Romans 13.1 Let every person be subject To the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those exist that have been instituted by God. Though we acknowledge and affirm that it is God who has placed civil authorities in their positions, we must also acknowledge and affirm that there are some in those positions who have abused their authority for harm rather than good. And the book of Esther is a testament to that. The book of Esther gives us the example of how authority can often be abused by fallen humans to promote harm rather than good. How so? We've seen in this book authority used in order to abuse women and treat them as livestock in this tacky beauty contest. Right? We've seen authority Used and abused to plot a decree to kill and annihilate the people of God. We've seen authority used and abused to erect gallows 
to hang an innocent man. So what does it say to all of us? It says this very clearly, that there are those who have been placed in positions of authority that have not used their God-given positions for good but for evil. It does exist in a world of fallen, sinful human beings. Authority can be misused. Authority can be abused, and it has been. But brothers and sisters, anarchy, having no rule, having no state is never an alternative that is presented for us in God's holy word. Anarchy is never an option. Having no rule is never an option. Think about your own lives. What positions of authority do you hold in your own lives? How have you used that authority or abused that authority in your own lives? Whether you are a foreman on your job or whether you are an employer, a senior employer, who is entrusted to train new employees. Whether you are a teacher in a school or a mother or father leading a home. How have you used your authority? Because that authority has been entrusted to you by God. And we must use that authority in ways that will honor and glorify God. And those who have been given positions of authority that abuse that authority will one day stand before God. And those who have used that authority for good will be honored by God. Brothers and sisters, this should be a great reminder to you and to me that we should pray for those who are in authority. We should pray for those who are in authority. What is our responsibility as believers? First Timothy 2 1. I urge that supplications, prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? Why do we pray for those who are in high positions? Well, Timothy tells us, verse three, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior. Why do we pray for those who are in positions of authority? Number one, because it is good and pleasing to God, our Savior. Because it pleases God, we should pray for those who are in authority. Think about, think about why this is pleasing to God. Why does it please God when we pray for those who are in authority? Is it not because when we pray for those who are in authority, we recognize and acknowledge that they have been placed there by God? We acknowledge that they have been given that authority by God. Therefore, we pray and acknowledge that it is God. God who is sovereign over that position. They've been there, placed there by God. We pray for them because God has placed them there. Therefore, we then acknowledge that God is sovereignly, omnisciently, divinely working out all things after the counsel of his own will. And those who are in authority are but tools in the hands of God. So pray for them. As much as you may despise those who are in authority over you. Pray for them. What have we seen Esther do? She has prayed for the king. Has she not? She prayed to the king of kings for the king. Why? So that the king's heart would be softened to the saving of her people. Do you see that in this? Esther is an example to us 
of even in the midst of the most dire circumstances, even in the midst of a situation that seems utterly hopeless, I'm sure much worse than you and I would ever experience on our own jobs. Esther not only prayed, but she fasted for the king. What does that say to us? When king, when she stands before the king, his heart is softened. He's seen the queen not once, but twice. And each time she's received mercy. But how? Well, it was God. But who beseeched God on her on his behalf? Esther, Mordecai. And Esther even said to Mordecai, go and tell all of the people, all of the Jews that you can gather in Susa. Tell them all to pray. Tell them all to fast. Brothers and sisters, we must pray. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can do no more than pray until you've prayed. We must pray. We must pray. This man, Ahasuerus, who so often abused his authority for the promulgation of evil, has somehow, some way, been moved by this orphan Jewish girl so that he could use his authority for the promulgation of good. How? There is someone praying for that man. There is someone who is praying that God would so move on that man's heart. Esther is a great example to us that we are to pray for those who are in authority. Because all of our hearts lie in the hands of the king of kings. We are thankful for those who have exercised authority well. And there can be great rejoicing when authority is used to promote justice and mercy and peace. And that's exactly what's happening in this chapter. Brothers and sisters, pray for those who are in positions of authority. Pray that they use their authority for their positions for good, for mercy, for justice, for peace. Pray for fathers and for mothers. Pray for them that they raise their children in the fear of the Lord. Pray for elders. Pray for deacons that they lead gospel Christ centered churches well and that they are examples of Christ. Pray for churches that they proclaim and protect the gospel. Pray that they are busy making disciples. Pray that they are examples of, of, of light in this dark world. Pray for your employers. Pray for those who are running those companies. Pray that they run them with, with integrity. That they seek not silver and gold, but a good name of integrity. And however much you represent that company, represent God even more. Pray for our world leaders. That they promote justice and peace in this world. And pray for their salvation. Secondly. A desire for justice. We see a desire for justice in this eighth and ninth chapter of the book of Esther. And, and think about this. You and I can easily become drunk with the idea that Haman, his ten sons and all of his family, that they got what was coming to them. Isn't that kind of what you feel as you read these, these ending chapters? That Haman got what was coming to him. His ten sons got what was coming to them. And you might not be wrong when you think about this idea of justice. But I'd like to ask you for a moment. Where did that even come from in you? 
Where did the idea of justice ever come from in you? The belief that they got what was coming to them. Where did it all come from? You may say, well, it came from, look at the actions of Haman in this book. He obviously was an evil man. And he deserved the death that was coming to him. And the enemies of the Jews deserved to be brought down low. But think deeper. Why did they deserve to be brought down low? Where does your belief that they deserved to be brought down low come from? You and I are created in the image of God. And as image bearers of God, we desire justice. Not just because we have been culturally conditioned to desire justice, but again, because we are created in the image of God. Our desire for justice is good. Why? Because God has created us with that desire. And when we display that desire for justice, guess what it does to the rest of the world? It reflects to the rest of the world what God is like. Do you hear that? When we display a desire for justice as being image bearers of God, created in the image of God, it reflects to the world around us what God is like. God is a just God. And we have been created with that communicable attribute of wanting and needing and desiring justice. You see it most evidently in your children. At the youngest of ages, they have this keen understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Now, what is right is usually falling in their favor, right? But they have a desire that they have an understanding that when they've been wrong, they let their voices be heard. My son and I and my wife were watching uh, Frosty the Snowman last night. I think I've been watching Frosty the Snowman for the past 37 years and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But there was a moment in which Frosty's hat was stolen from Frosty by that uh, man who says, uh, you know, the wicked, wicked. You remember that guy? Yeah. Remember how he? Yeah. (laughs) And my son boiled with anger. I don't like that. He took his hat. That's a sin. My son is very aware of sin. I hate sin. And he was stomping around the living room because of the injustice that had been done to Frosty. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, our desire for justice is good. And we should thank God that he has created us with that innate desire for justice. We must also recognize that we are we are not merely objects, though, of justice. We are also objects of mercy. And when we show mercy, we also reflect to the world what God is like. We must be careful in our right pursuit of justice. And we don't we hate when someone wrongs us. We want justice. But we must be careful in our right pursuits of justice not to pursue personal vengeance. Not to pursue personal vengeance. Brothers and sisters, personal vengeance, vendettas are always sinful and wrong. Always sinful and wrong. You may say, what do you mean always? You mean just in the New Testament, right? No, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And also today. 
Now, there appears to be a conflict in what we just said versus what we see in the book of Esther. After all, verse 13 of chapter 8 says, the people were to be ready to take vengeance on their enemies. That word actually doesn't mean vengeance. It means defense. That they were given an edict to defend their lives. They've killed 75,000 people. 75,000 would-be attackers, and it appears that they are taking revenge. But let's walk through this again. Christians are commanded to love, and that command has never changed. We are commanded to love one another. It's not a new command from the New Testament. It is who God has always been and what he's always commanded for the people of God. Are you with me? God has always commanded that we love. Look at Romans chapter 12. Let's go there real quick. Romans chapter 12. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight of all. In your own sight of all. If possible, So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil or by evil, but overcome evil with good. Brothers and sisters, our desire for justice, it never authorizes us, never, ever authorizes us to take personal revenge. Ever. There are those who have wronged us. And in our dark moments, in our quiet times, we can begin to plot in our mind. As James Brown said, the big payback. (laughs) One of my favorite songs, ironically. (laughs) This command from Paul is from God. And brothers and sisters, God does not change. It's not as though God in the Old Testament said, kill all your enemies. And in the New Testament, he said... After all, let's change that and let's decide to love our enemies after all. We may seek justice and good for others. Yes, we may. Stop uh, those who are being abused. Stop those who are being manipulated. Stop those who are being mistreated. Yes, do all those things. But seek personal revenge. No, not never. Why? Because each human being belongs to God, not us. We are to never take vengeance that belongs only to God in our own hands. Because if we do, then then we act and live as if we are the judge and not God. We cast judgment on those who have wronged us. And when we take revenge on them, we do God's job for him. And that is always a sin. What if they've greatly sinned us? 
Brothers and sisters, even their, even their transgressions, their sins, are not first and foremost against us. Even their sins, their wrongs against us, are not first and foremost against us. They're first and foremost against God. And even their sins do not deliver them into our hands, but they deliver them into God's hands. First and foremost, whether they know it or not, they have sinned against God. So then, what of these 75,000 who have died in this narrative? How do we explain the actions of the Jews who have killed these 75 would-be 75,000 would-be attackers? That's a lot of people. How did it come about that these Jews killed 75,000? Did they go looking for the 75,000? Did they go looking for 75,000 people? You can shake your head yes or no. No. They came looking for them. Right? And what was the command or the law that was given for the Jews? Defend yourself. Are they acting within or outside of the law? Within their right. They acted within the right. Who ordained the governing authorities that issued this edict? God did. So God, who has ordained authorities, has so led the authorities to create an edict. In which the people are able to defend themselves. Because God in this fallen world has ordained the state to coerce us. Even to the point of taking our property, brothers and sisters, even to the point of taking our very lives. This is how order is to be preserved in a sinful world. Now that, that's, that's one aspect of it. But you must understand that the defense of the people of Israel... This was not vindication for Mordecai. This was not where God is going to pay back all of the enemies of Mordecai. So let's kill 75,000. Not at all. This is not paying a particular people back for messing with the Jews, as it were, per se. But then in another sense, it is. And there's a reason for that. The judgment of God's enemies is not how we are accustomed to seeing things today, is it? But that is exactly what's taking place in the book of Esther. So God is taking vengeance over God's enemies. And he's doing so in a particular time and space in order to show the rest of the nations who God is. Are you hearing me? We tend to think that God will deal with nations in the same way that he dealt with nations in the Old Testament, but that's not the case. God does not always deal with nations in the same way that he dealt with nations in the Old Testament. We may look at, at, at countries or nations that experience great tragedies. Haiti. And we see all of the thousands of people that are killed, and we may look upon that place and say, that's God's judgment. But God is not acting today with nations as he acted in the Old Testament with nations. This is very important for you to understand. When something happens to Haiti, when a storm comes and runs through Florida, when storms come and run through New York, or when a, God forbid, but it may happen, when an earthquake comes and hits our state, it is not per se God's judgment upon that state. It is what God is allowing to happen in this sinful fallen world. What we are seeing here, theologically speaking, is known as proleptic judgment. 
proleptic judgment. That is this, a final judgment from the end of time brought forward in God's sovereign purposes to break into our world. Listen, though, temporarily, not as a normal pattern for how we are to relate to each other, but at, at his discretion, God's discretion, in order to show and make clear that what he says is good and right and true. In that sense, Old Testament Israel, listen very close, Old Testament Israel was a continual picture of that. God breaking in to show that who God is and what God says is true. The Old Testament nation of Israel was that in the Old Testament in a way that no other nation was at that time. And listen, what no other nation is today, including the nation of Israel. Are you hearing me? God in the Old Testament was specifically showing the world who he was. And he was using a particular nation. That nation was unique at that particular time to show the world, the nations, who God was, who God is. And when that was over, it was over. And it does not continue today. So you may, and I'll say this uh, clearly, the state of Israel in the Old Testament was uniquely and specifically used to to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. And once that purpose was fulfilled, they, that nation, was no longer uniquely used as they once were. Therefore, the uniqueness of Israel's status, a status that was once held in this world, it has been accomplished and completed. So don't think that the nation of Israel or any other nation for that matter is more unique or more special on this earth than another in the sight of God. Pray for the peace of Israel. Fine. Pray also for the peace of Africa. Pray for the peace of Israel. Pray also for the peace of Mexico. Because Israel is no more special now than Mexico, Africa or Russia. It has been accomplished The purpose for which Israel existed as a special, unique nation, it has been accomplished. You can take all the trips to Israel you want. You can bow down before as many stones as you want. You can watch. I won't even say their names. All of that has been accomplished. Accomplished. How do we know that? Because Paul tells us or God tells us through Paul. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our nation is not what makes us right before God, but rather it is our faith in Christ alone and his righteousness that makes us right before God and unique in this world before God. So God does have a nation. God does have a people and we are scattered across this globe and we are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That now is his special, unique people that are reflecting who God is in this world. We are now the new Israel. Christ is, is the new Israel. We are the people, of the new Israel. That is who we are. And we reflect who God is in this world. That's what's going on in chapter eight, verse 11. The only people. That would be the object of force would be those who attempted force on the people of Israel. Brothers and sisters, God may delay his vengeance, but you can rest assured that God will carry out 
his retribution against his enemies. Justice demands that God will avenge his enemies. So then what does this mean for you and I? It means that you and I should consider our standing before God. You might not ever meet the avenger of enemies in this life. But rest assured, you and I will stand before him one day. And that reckoning will be unavoidable. Turn from your sins. Escape the vengeance that God will surely pour out on his enemies. The wrath that God will surely pour out on his enemies. Turn to Christ. Who has absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf, on on behalf of those who turn to Christ, who believe in Christ. And last but not least. The great reversal. What an interesting moment in, in chapter nine, verse one. On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them. The reverse occurred. You see that there? The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. We've made the point over and over again that the name of God is never mentioned in this book. And yet God is everywhere present. And once again, the Lord shows himself to be in the midst of the book of Esther. The great subject of the book of Esther. There is an edict that has gone out with the king's approval. It is one that is surely a death sentence for the Jews. And now. If mercy is to be extended, there is to be another edict. There is to be another edict. The Jews were were destined to die. The, The edict could not be revoked. And within this system, there was apparently no way out. But then there was a way out. There was a way that they could be saved. Send out another edict. And it would not erase the former edict. But it would triumph over the former edict. It would triumph over the former edict. The people of God who were destined to be annihilated were preserved by God. At these people's lowest moment, God steps in. And there was a great reversal. In many ways, the message of the whole Bible is a message of a great reversal. Even in this edict. The one that the king issues. We see the presence of God. And it is a reflection of his law. The law goes out from God. Sin is to be punished by death. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.2. The soul that sins shall die. And it was promised to the man, the first man, in the Garden of Eden. That if he was to disobey and eat of the tree that God commanded him not to eat of, that he would die. These are commands from God. This is an edict from God. And yet, if mercy was to be had, another edict would be extended. Another decree would be extended, wherein the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, the the eternal member of the triune Godhead, would come and he would bear the penalty of the first edict. He would take the first edict for us. He would take the first decree for us. And we would see, we are seeing time and time again, the presence of God and the actions of men pointing to Christ and his redemptive work. Sin had entered the world through the one man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. And it was through our union with Adam, our our first federal head, 
that we were all infected with sin. We were destined to die. But God extended mercy. God extended mercy. God extended mercy. And he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam or the second man. And I'll tell you honestly, there is nothing or no one of any significance between the first man and the second man. Jesus Christ has come to effect the great reversal and the reversal that is microcosmically, microcosmically displayed for us in the book of Esther is macrocosmically depicted for us in the cross, the resurrection, the ascension and the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to effect reconciliation between God and man. He is, if you like, uh, Adam in reverse. He comes as the gift of God to give life to a world that has fallen in sin. He has come to undo the sin of Adam and to make this great reversal for a particular people that he has loved before the foundation of the world. That is the great message. That is why the great message of the Bible is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole of history is pointing toward this great reversal, this great and final reversal where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Many people declared themselves to be Jews that day. (laughs) Through God's sovereignty, God has made his people so attractive, so much so that a large number of people have converted to Judaism. What is God doing? At that particular time, what is he doing? He's preparing the hearts of the people for the coming of the Messiah. Those who are not Jews are converting to Judaism. And he is bringing in his people. They would soon learn that just in a few centuries, the one that they were hoping 